0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Winning with AI. Today I am with Gareth Davies. How are you doing, Gareth? I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, good cheers. Uh, thanks for coming on. So today we are going to be discussing future AI trends in 2024 and what's going to be happening. I know uh, we've, we've chatted a little bit about it, and we've got a few areas we want to run through. Um, but. But first of all, obviously, 2023 has been such a probably turbulent year and explosive year for AI, whether it's, you know, language models, whether it's um, everyone thinks they like to chat GPT, but uh, and also for ourselves, we've, we've, you know, grown a lot and accelerated our products with AI as well. Um, How do you probably say AI is going to go and how the year has been so far?
1: Um. Well, I think, yeah, just sort of picking up on, on this year is, you know, this has definitely been the year of LLMs and chat GPT. Everything has gone absolutely crazy for large language models. So, and, and, and I think that that's going to be something that is obviously going to continue for the foreseeable future. And so I, I think that a lot of the things that we'll talk about today will be in some way sort of influenced by by large language models. Yeah. Um, but I, I think as well that there's um, interesting areas of research um, that are relevant that that don't apply to large language models that it, uh, are, are give us smaller models, but are maybe more specific to particular use cases. And, and I think that it will be interesting to see how some of the sort of shared research that comes out uh, over the next 12, 18 months or so can be utilized um, for both large language models and for sort of neural nets in in, in general?
0: Yeah, so we've covered kind of the, the key trends in to a few different areas. Uh, the first one I think we mentioned was around uh, how embedding language and neural network models is going to accelerate in 2024 um do you want to just touch upon that as, as a start and let us know for a start what you mean by that because you know I've, i know you mentioned the adoption of vector databases in normal yeah. terms some people won't know what we're talking about so can you kind of give a bit of a just no view to what that could be and what trend that could enhance and almost enable i think that'd be interesting
1: yeah so embeddings are like we've been following them for well a number of years really. It, it, and, and we make good use of them here. But basically, I think trying to explain what an embedding is, it's it's a table, it's it's a lookup table, and, and it's a way of um of uh transforming some sort of input that uh, that we have in the real world. Um, which in the case of large language models would be you know, words or parts of words. For for us, it might be some sort of field that exists on a sales opportunity or something, but something that isn't sort of naturally uh, a, a number. That And because neural networks, they don't deal with sort of text-based information. They only understand, understand numbers. And so this concept of embeddings was... Um, developed about 10 years or so ago and what it is is it enables you to basically transform your your text or whatever it is into a a a vector uh, which is sort of a representation of that of that text but the cool thing about it is that these embeddings as they're called are are learnt during the the training process so initially they don't have any sort of idea of, of what it is so it just throws you back a, a a random set of numbers but as you go through the training process these vectors these features gradually take on sort of um more and more meaning and the interesting thing about it is that you find that things that are conceptually similar End up occupying a very sort of close uh, relationship in in the feature space, and so in, in sort of a high dimensionality um, plane, then these vectors are all quite close together. If you have a concept that's that's quite similar, so you can imagine um, for for words, things like king and queen, they would sort of all be they would be in in, in a similar sort of area, uh, and there was an interesting paper that was done a few years ago from a a Kaggle competition where uh, they looked at the, they created embeddings for a a sales forecasting competition uh, for Germany and they created these embeddings and then um, trained this neural network to predict uh, where sales were going to be, how many sales were going to be sort of store by store by store and then they created a uh, a plot of these embeddings based off the location of these stores, and you could see that there was a very close relationship between the actual geographical um areas of these of these shops um so they'll all be sort of close together in in Germany if it's to the actual physical location of them so it's it's really cool how they they take on sort of a, a semantic meaning um and of course this kind of means that you can take advantage of the fact that because you can you can calculate how far one vector is from another vector and if you can do that then you can see things well okay I can now for work out what other things are like me in the same sort of area in, in vector space so um, companies like sort of OpenAI have uh, released APIs that are now enable you to Basically, send uh, a, a, a document, and it will come back with a, an embedding value. And these embedding values, you can then store and and then put inside one of these one of these databases. And um, that enables you to do things like be able to search for things, um, uh, and 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 be able to, you know, u- utilize the fact that you have these things that are are really close close together.
0: That makes sense. Um, I think even just the simple term of king and queen, obviously that's a <laughs> fine a lot, but it just means you've got those associations and you can figure things out. So I see how it works. Next year, obviously, that's going to accelerate. We're going to see more trends to do with it, uh, hopefully trend and adoption and everything like that. Um, how how would that be a practical use i, I jumped to kind of sales examples because we work off databases which is trying to predict you know um sell seller scores and pipeline health and deal health and things like that in a practical use case whether whether sales is a great example or not how could um it can be in the work world how could you apply these to really enhance yourself um i mean i can see things like search and Things make sense across the database, but
1: yeah, and, and and recommendations, right? So, if you've if if you are interested in seeing where you've had a similar sort of situation in the past, then potentially you you could use um a particular pitch. Let's say you've got a proposal, and okay, you, and you've got got an opportunity. So, I I want to be able to see um other proposals or opportunities that I've done in the past that might be similar to that and be able to draw draw on those and then sort of cross-reference how that opportunity kind of played out and things. So I think that, that there is that that's sort of an immediate use for it within sort of human beings. But I think that the more interesting thing is how these embeddings can be used within um, at a programmatic level, wipe by the actual neural networks themselves. Because if you think about it, these things are sort of it, they becoming like the language of the neural net. To it's their it's their language of, of concepts, but it's a universal language. So that um, if you can somehow use that for a whole type of different range of inputs, whether that's text or images or videos. So, you know, a cat, a picture of a cat occupies the same sort of space, embedding space as the word cat um, or the sound cat. And so, you know, then that starts to become sort of a universal thing that the neural network can use to start using for different types of of, of output uh, and for communicating with other types of systems.
0: Okay, so you can almost, yeah, (laughs) I see what you mean. So it's almost going to accelerate that capability of the neural network to to understand further. And uh, the example's good, because then I guess you've got that central neural network that's understanding further using embeddings. Then I guess you could just, it's going to depend on what UI or what tool or use case you've got, but you could have a, like you see. Uh, language models but you could have image generation and things like that based by typing language in or talking to it as well i assume yeah. voice recognition too
1: yeah so i think it's yeah. you know it's it's a really it's a really sort of core concept that um is uh, i i think is going to become more and more important as, as time goes on and, and and these and we you know start to explore sort of more modes of operation for neural nets
0: yeah i imagine it is i think especially with the adoption rate increase of ai everywhere they're trying to get to do more and more things so yeah it's only going to accelerate isn't it yeah. um we've talked about language models a lot um i know one of the points that we said we'd we chat around was uh, techniques for fine-tuning base model LLMs. Do you just want to elaborate on that and why you've kind of flagged that as a potential trend? Um, I know you've said driven by the open source community as well, which I'm assuming is a very important part of it. Um, why think, do you think
1: that's going to be a trend? So, well, maybe, maybe we just start talking a little bit about... Um, language models, and, and in, in particular, sort of the chat GPT and the likes of Claude, um, where if effectively, yes, okay, we, we know that they're large language models, they have many, many billions of parameters, and they take a huge amount of compute. But the actual process of training these things, sort of involve, first involves just exposing the model to, a huge amount of data, and you're not too concerned about what it is. So you're taking data from the internet, and, and then you're feeding it. And the idea there is, is that it, it, it sort of a understands language. Um, it understands how to sort of construct things that are have, you know, grammar and sentences and things like that. Um, Uh, And and B, with with these models, um, you throw in enough information into it and it it starts to absorb the actual, the content and and, and the the knowledge of it and that can regurgitate that at some point in the future. But once you have gone through that process, what you have really is a document completer. What it wants to do is to just predict the next word based off of some prompts that you give it. Um, And it doesn't yet have the capability to have this sort of question and answering type of assistant um, that we become used to with things like ChatGPT. So in order to give it that kind of um, capability, what you need to do is go through a process called fine tuning. And that really kind of involves having a much um, more curated data set which, um, you know broadly means so that you, you, you structure data so that it has this sort of question and answer type, type, type format. So I, I, I train it by, here, here's my question, and this is the answer that I expect. And so guys like Open AI, then they will actually go off and find a group of individuals and they'll be responsible for sitting down and sort of, you know, creating this data set. So quite, you know, labor intensive um and then then it gets fine um then it gets goes through a, a, a training exercise again so you're not starting from scratch but you can't call this fine tuning so you don't train the whole model you just train a tiny bit of it and it just so happens that doing that with with this smaller sort of data set then sort of gives it the kind come of brings it to life and it has this sort of assistant type quality to it um but you know i think it's 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 quite um a, a labor intensive exercise to 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 kind of go through and so i could i could well imagine that the you know the, the open source community which will have access to certain open source based models will be looking to explore ways to go through this fine tuning exercise without the big overhead or as much of the big overhead of having this sort of, you know, drafting in a bunch of people to create this curated data set quite, quite, quite as much. And I, I don't know what sort of form that that's, that's going to take There's a fair amount of th- this thing called reinforcement learning that's being used inside of, um, uh, of, of open AI to, to incorporate our sort of human feedback into um, into this sort of fine tuning data fine tuning process as well, um, so that there, there might be a way of using uh, reinforcement learning will sort of more and more to kind of uh, make that whole process less human dependent. Uh, um, so I think that that will be. I, I, I can imagine that being something that the open source community will um, look to look looked to develop because they, they don't won't necessarily have yeah. the resources available to them the likes of open ai will
0: so it's it's, it's interesting so the, the fine tuning part uh am i right in saying in the last podcast that we talked about we talked about how obviously deep learning learning models worked we actually went into the what's the lego bricks but went into that fine tuner piece i always remember the diagram that you sent <laughs> yeah it, it kind of really simplified it for me um we'll have to share a version at some point. Um, so it's more that fine-tuning piece. And actually, the trend's probably not that that process is going to rad, radically change. It's more that we've got a growing open-source community of AI experts who it's definitely accelerating kind of progress and everything. Would you say it's more that open-source community could potentially have, have more breakthroughs because you've got more minds, more people working on it in different situations?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh- yeah, I, I think that the 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 open source community is a great um, place for innovation. Really, um, yeah. people, you release something to the the, the to, to the world, and people will just take it, and they'll gonna you know, do all sorts of crazy things with it. So, uh, and, yeah. and I think that this is a you know a prime area where um, they there's there's a need to make make this more sort of straightforward and 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 simple and and effective
0: yeah hopefully all good Uh, i think yeah i think it's that it comes down to that open source community is probably working on this as well in their own time just creatively having fun to do it as well a lot of people and it, it takes away any restrictions of uh kind of like black box thinking where you you're working on a product or you're working on something to do something and you can't look wider than that and it's almost a it's probably a psychological shift as well um so interestingly the next <laughs> the next one i don't know if you touched on this as part of that but the search for greater context length will continue um but transform will, will continue to dominate the field can you explain what you meant by the by that line uh and how yeah how okay. that's okay. how that's going to trend and change in in the next year or Grow because so I,
1: I guess I, I kind of touched a little bit on, on, on the last point, which is that you know, OpenAI's chat GPT um, has something like 75 billion parameters uh, inside of it, and the amount of compute that is required to train a network like that is just enormous. And you've got banks and banks and banks of these specialist GPU racks that are just working for weeks on end to tra- train these models. So incredibly um computationally expensive. Um and the, the 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 context length, what I'm talking about here is the prompt that you're able to use when you yeah. interact with one of these models. so you know you type in a question and uh, but there is a finite limit to the size of that that prompt that you're able to give it. Yeah. And so you can imagine that that this prompt that we feed these networks it sort of becomes like the working memory, like the RAM of the of the neural network that it can you know, work with whilst it's coming back to answer your particular question. And so obviously very useful to be able to have a, a more, be able to put more information into it so that it has more information available and you know, m- 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 it gives, gives it a better performance. So th- there's really two, 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 two reasons um, for, for this point, which is um, for, uh, w- in the future, you know, we will need to find a way of making these things more efficient um, the whole sort of training of the of, of it more more efficient um and uh we will you know ideally like to have a context length that will be bigger and bigger and bigger and the the sort of bottleneck is is that these uh large language models are based off of something called a transformer and a, a transformer has this particular characteristic to it where um, as your context uh, length increases, then the amount of compute that you need to process that context length increases to the square of that of the length of that context length. So if I start off with, let's say, a, a context length of four, then the number of the amount of compute is is sixteen. But if I extend that to eight, then the amount of compute I need is now sixty four. So you know it becomes pretty big so it's the same sort of ratio that you have like with in the physical world with speed so if you've got a car then most cars will be able to do sort of you know 120 130 miles an hour or something for whatever it is you know uh, uh, 130 great horsepower or something but to get up from 120 miles an hour up to you know 220 requires an engine that's now like you know a thousand brake horsepower so you need an enormous more Amount of power in order to uh deliver the sort of the second half of that speed yeah i mean i didn't realize more context then you have to have more and more and more power available Um, i mean
0: the car examples are really really uh, good, good example of it as well but even just the squaring point so in theory that's why there's limitations today on on um i to think context length or input length or how we want to define it so it's because it's because it's an interesting one because I, I completely agree this is definitely something that'll be a trend next year because I, I look at it from marketing and sales use case marketing you want specific relevant content stuff that's created not just generic stuff that's usually created at the moment um, yeah and it needs to be the right tone of voice it has to be on the right brand the right points relevant as well as you wanted to search and do a lot of the research stuff where you can, uh, a lot of demand on it um, and a lot of it's possible, but the more and more you put in, the better output you get. Um, and that's only going to accelerate because we'll probably look back this year and we'll look at, we'll look at the early uses of it and post using AI generated content and we'll probably look back and think, God, that's obviously AI generated content. So it's going to be more specific. And then from a sales point of view, I think about, um, I'll leverage it a lot. To research accounts and do things like that, I'll be honest. A lot of the time, ninety percent of the stuff it comes back with, even if I try and tailor it, is probably not either relevant to cloud apps or not relevant to what kind of what problems we're trying to search for in that company to help them to know if you know should we spend time talking to that sales director or somebody like that. Um, yeah. But you can only prompt it so much to do that. And then you you physically got go out and still do it. And I think this is a limitation. But if you had that greater context length, you could just create um, which one the tools you've got pre-made workflows. So templates, that's just copy and paste. And you fill in the key points that you're trying to figure out. And it speeds up your process again. So you're almost going to have pre-made workflows and longer context length to give you highly specific results and actions that you're after um but how is that how is that plausible if if it scales like that because you know everyone would love to drive a really fast car outside i mean hopefully yeah, electric
1: exactly <laughs> but, and i think that you know just to answer your your that, that, that point it's the that particular characteristic if you want to call it is a function of the um, the design of the transformer architecture. So there's a a, a piece of that transformer architecture that's called the the, uh, the attention mechanism, and it's that attention mechanism which basically gives it the ability to look at everything that it has in its context and start you know finding out how, seeing how those things kind of relate to each other. Um, so the design of that um, attention mechanism is something that people have played around with over the last, sort of, well, really since Transformers were first um, uh, brought out sort of six or seven years ago. Um, and people have been sort of trying to figure out is there a way of making this attention mechanism more efficient? And, and so far, people have come up with sort of various suggestions. There was various takes on ALMA. So there's the, there's the linformer, there's the performer, I think there's the reformer. Um and these mechanisms are uh, all try to make that um, attention mechanism more and more efficient. But in doing so, there's a trade-off. Um, so there is they can reduce the memory demands but the problem is, is they haven't yet found a way of reducing the memory demands but still retaining the the complete performance of the sort of traditional transformer attention uh, mechanism so i think that it's sort of going into the future if we are to stick with transformers then we will somehow need to kind of find a way of um engineering that um, attention mechanism or we'll be looking at a different type of concept altogether um from 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 a from, from a transformer um but yeah so far all of the effort's been put into you know trying to find a, an alternative to this attention mechanism the the trap the trouble is and well, I think that i, I don't think this is going to be an immediate priority for many of the providers of the large language models is that there is a sort of a fairly known, well, a well-known chart that you can predict based off of how much training time um, you give a, a, a language model, um, how much compute you throw at it, what its performance is going to be based off of its loss value so you know so there's this sort of plot so i you know i know as company a that if i train my language model for x amount longer then i'm going to get you know a, a quantifiable improvement in my in 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 my uh, language model performance and so i think that you know at least in the short term people are just going to throw money at this problem and just try and <laughs> ignore the the efficiency (laughs) aspect of it but it's gonna be it's gonna become more and more important for sure definitely
0: yeah i mean with sustainability goals as well and cost of energy everything it's bound to become a bigger and bigger problem but it wouldn't shock me back to the the second point around open source community if something comes out of there that ends up being because i feel like a lot of these innovations are also born out of trying to do something and then accidentally creating something which is a solution for a totally different <laughs> um area of it so it'll be be interesting to see that um i think it all, all makes sense it'll be really interesting to follow that and how it goes because i think it's going to have to improve to a degree but just to jump on to one of the next points which also i don't know if it could be related to that last one because in theory i guess you could it could be a part of the solution by shifting approaches but uh You you mentioned hybrid approaches and using some kind of combination between small neural networks and statistical-based systems will become more and more common. Made me think the last point we're making could actually deploy in small, more focused uh, pieces of AI kit, which I guess is what we'll come to open AI in a minute, but what they might do could actually support that demand and throttling and things. But um, why do you think that's going to increase
1: more um, and what, what's the benefit of that, I guess, as well? I think, and this probably comes back more into our own sort of comfort zone in terms of you know, using neural networks for forecasting, um, time series forecasting and um, more tabular, um, uh, pr- pr- um, tabular predictions. Um, and to that regard i think that what we've seen is a tendency for people to just use try and use neural networks for end-to-end training so ever since you know AlexNet in 2012 and the fact that oh you we can just put in an image straight into our neural net and out comes this amazing classification of is it a cat or is it a dog people have been trying to use you know, neural networks do the, the whole shebang, and I think that there are still cases where there there, the, there are cases where that works very well. And an image, computer vision, and language language models is, is obviously the, the the obvious point on that. But I think that with the types of forecasting that we do with time series forecasting um that's i think it's inconclusive let's put it that way that using a neural network for just doing end-to-end um for forecasting whatever it is you're forecasting is something that is, is really a sensible thing and um there's been a sort of a bunch of research there's sort of two camps at the minute in time series world where you have one camp that is very much transformer based where their approach is okay we know transformers work really well a whole bunch of different tasks they're very adaptable they're very powerful if we can just throw all of our data into it um then we will we'll, we'll we'll get a, a decent result out of it but transformers are quite complicated beasts and they're quite big and they can be quite tricky to you know train and they are you know operate in a very sort of high dimensional um world. And so there's this sort of competing um train of thought which says actually for this type of application um you're better off just using more of a, a statistical type approach. Um, and then using a, a neural net to kind of work out the bits that your statistical based approach isn't particularly good isn't particularly good at. So you kind of like take the load off the neural net um, to to try and uh, make its job make its life a, a little bit easier. Um, and I you know, we'll think that we've seen. Um, uh in in the forecasting world there's a model a model called delinear which came out which was they, they described themselves as being embarrassingly simple or something like that um and was has no non-linear PCs in it so it's not it's not even like a deep neural net um and um it's ha- has really good performance and you know really good performance relative to um uh, tra- transformers and transformers are, as I said, I think that their performance is kind of still a bit inconclusive as to whether they can really capture all of the the, the information um, effectively uh, for for that that type of information. Um, there's, there's why, a... why
0: would you say so? In transformers, that comes back to the bit we talked about earlier, doesn't it? Why would you say? That, what's the limitation of that versus, so there's two routes. What's what's the limitations of each and why would we take a preference? I feel, I feel like you often get to this crossroads of technology which is like, okay, one of them, people are going to go down. It ends up actually the, the other one's more efficient. I think it happens across a lot yeah. of different examples of that um, because it can be adapted in a certain way or grows. Um, what are the key differences, would you say?
1: I think that probably the the most significant one is is the interpretability of it uh when you're working with a transformer you have quite a complicated structure to kind of work with and that's not so bad when you're working with fairly abstract concepts but when you're using you know effectively numbers then you're forecasting numbers um then for us it's kind of you know reasonably intuitive it's just sort of the range of things that should, should be coming out of it and so in terms of analyzing what a model is doing it's 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 in some ways quite it's, it's much more of a, a straightforward process to to understand as opposed to you know some model that's specifically for computer vision where you're you know breaking things out into pixels and then you have these layers that you have to kind of work through and sort of abstract filters and stuff like that so um uh, uh, having as a sort of a practitioner having a model that is is more simple um is is more interpretable and, and therefore more easy to tune um improve upon whereas if you're using a, a more complicated structure, then you're kind of you, you kind of have a few ideas of what might work and what do, what doesn't work, but you, you're dealing in a really sort of abstract area, and you can't really say for sure whether this approach is going to work or, or that approach is going to work. Um, and I think that some of the the just using a base transformer. Um, for this type of sort of numerical forecasting type of information doesn't naturally do a particularly good job. Um, but there have, have been, again, attempts to change that attention mechanism that we spoke about before um, to make it more suitable for time series forecasting. So there was something called the autoformer that came out and, and another one um, earlier this year called the crossformer, which uh, look for particular, um, trends, um, in the actual sort of signature of the, of, of the data, of the, of the sequence of, of the data. So they're looking for sort of patterns. Um, and so that they've kind of more, uh, more, more, more adept at pick picking that out. Um, and I think that if that's going to succeed, then that that's going to have to be the way, the way it's going to go. Um, but yeah, I think that overall, the complexity of, of that kind of system just makes it really quite a difficult thing to do. The, the one sort of caveat, I think, to, to that is that um, a few weeks ago, uh, a company called Nixlo produced uh, a a model called um, TimeGPT, which is generative pre-chain transformer, um, Sort of trained on a large sort of corpus of forecasting data. So trained in a sort of similar vein as a large language model um, using sort of many, many different time series of information with the idea that it will generalize well to all sorts of forecasting um, uh, use cases. So with, with sort of very, very little uh, input, you can then throw your sort of random um time series uh data into it and and you'll get some sort of uh output out of it that's that's performed as well um so it'll be interesting to see how how that shakes out because i don't think you know every i don't think anybody yet has attempted to do um a sort of uh a, a, a developer a model for time series forecasting that has um uh sort of this this cross-training um capability where it's been trained on on a number of different data sets and, and will generalize to or to others so that would be that be an interesting thing and that, that would kind of make sense if you're gonna do use a, a transformer for that um but I think on a on a case by case single um, basis then smaller models is probably gonna give people a better result.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense. Um, it'll be really interesting to see where it goes because I guess it could have that wider model which does everything, but probably not as well. Um, but yeah, I feel I feel like the, it's probably dependent on where businesses are at in terms of what they need. Do they need a specialist, tool to do, uh, you know, like a forecast for something that's incredibly specific. I mean, you would assume you'd want something accurate for any sales forecasting and things like that, but uh, say it was a complex data piece, you might just want something generic that gets you close enough to do what you need for a business because the reality is of buying one tool that does 10 things uh, is probably going to be more efficient cost-wise than 10 tools that does one thing, if you know what I mean. So yeah. I, I imagine it's kind of going to be on a scale of businesses where some large enterprises will want a data team focused on challenging certain kind of issues in the company or challenges they've got and use specific tools as well so i can imagine it's a bit of a scale um we'll jump on the next one because speaking of challenges this is quite an interesting one and i'm really curious to see where this one goes because you mentioned so chatbot stores will become more common when we be used to train chatbots for specific domains Chatbots is, it's an interesting topic, actually, because there's nothing, I think just before AI, all you heard about was chatbots in the marketing world, in the sales world, because they're used as lead tools, information tools as well, so reducing demand, retention tools for customers having questions on how do I do this. Um, There's a lot of AI tools out there at the moment, which are literally just AI chatbots Uh, you can implement on the website really quickly now uh I mean from when I think about like the first proper chatbots coming online to today. God it used to be so much more complex what that I do. And you had to manually log everything and do all sorts of them. But what what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so I guess maybe chatbots isn't the right term, but um I, I, I guess I'm I'm talking um more around uh chat GPT and, and Claude and the like of there being the OpenAI released blogs of earlier this month, where they announced the uh, creation of the GPT Store, which is what I'm, I'm referring to here. Ah, so it means it's, so it's like a, chatbots. More yeah, about. yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and effectively, yeah. what that what that is is it's going to become a marketplace for um, ISVs like ourselves to go and create some um uh, application that uh, uses chat GPT gpt4 or whatever um and uh, uh can extend its capabilities by you can integrate it with other sources of data other um, apis um to give it you know a whole sort of specialism in a particular field a whole new sort of capability with access to particular sort of sets of resources and um uh, information so, so
0: in this one i guess talking about chatbots strategy teams, and so that you've got the new marketplaces <laughs> i guess we can sell them that effectively well is it because we could put our own products on but also Build a because I see a lot of tools at the moment out there which are just skinned chat GPTs to be, to be honest with you. Yeah, like they've all got slight, um, like benefits and stuff like that. But actually, because the fundamental part of the product is GPT 4.0 at the moment, um, you can actually just ask it the same stuff you'd ask chat GPT because. Behind it, it would still answer the same way, if you know what I mean. There's some benefits and templates and stuff added on, but it feels like you've got a... For me, it's like building a, a PC. You've probably got the same RAM, same memory, same graphics card. You can put whatever PC shell you want on it, which might look nice, and maybe have slightly different um, RGB lights on it or something that you want that you can customise
1: so it looks like your own thing. But fundamentally, the hardware is the same. Is that- uh, yeah, and I think at its core, you know, GPT will still be the the main sort of tool that gets used w- within that, but um, it will have access, you will have access to be able to feed uh, GPT with various other pieces of information that you can link into it programmatically. So for for example, there was this really cool um YouTube video from this guy called Gannett Kilcher, um where he you wouldn't want to try this at home. He um he he created this program where uh, effectively he used Chat GPT as a CPU and then used it to run like programs, silly like Snake chasing game yeah and and the way that he did it was that he in effect he you know he 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 made the, the the game aspect of it um and 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 the rules around it in in some sort of little tiny piece of code um and then his 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 game would then send instructions off to chat GPT you know tell me what the state is after I've done you know move this you know this thing off to the left or whatever and it will come back with a response um and then he'd parse that response and that, then that would be up on the shown back to the to, to the user so you know it's it's a, a, cra- a crazy thing to do but it kind of shows the the point of it this you can make GPT something that is you know completely, uh, sort of independent of a human being as such, um, uh, and just interact with other applications, um, and just by sort of some clever parsing of the um, and generating of prompts, parsing of information and things, then you can make something. Some something. Yeah, right.
0: yeah, you're right. Because I guess in that case, it's it's less about the. PC having the same hardware and everything, it's more about what you're getting on your desktop, because we might have the exact same laptops, but we're probably running very different things, and different things are happening, despite it running on the same stuff. Um, it's interesting, because I watched two videos recently. One was uh, Mario Kart, where someone programmed it to do a perfect lap in Mario Kart, and it took them, I mean, it took them far too long, <laughs> and a lot of energy and time, but they showed the video and then at the end ending, all the errors and stuff. And basically they give it one output, which is to to win, which in theory, same as the AlphaGo stuff, it's to win. Doesn't matter how it does it, it, just figures out the best way and what the learns more and more about what the loss criteria are. Uh and then in, yeah, eventually it does the perfect lap and you can never be it, which is from a human point of view. Um and then yeah, another one, I think it's like a Pokemon game or something, which is really complex because there's a lot of rules to do with that. Uh, yeah. but it made funny rules up as well which was uh, interesting I learnt certain things because it doesn't understand it was a really good way of actually seeing how it interacts with the gaming world which is quite quite good but um, that makes sense so those stores are going to pop up more and more I mean they're very creative uses for it um, but yeah. I think they show the, yeah, the potential <laughs> of what could happen with it because you could use it for a lot of different things um i guess that probably that
1: probably plays into the next the next yeah. point that we're going to talk about actually because you know i think if you sort of extend that along the fact that you now as of today you can create an application which chat gpc has access to your apis or some other data store, then i think that that um use of you know not necessarily chat gpt but large language models um that w- will become more and more sort of central to let's say a sort of a problem solving process. Um and um you know Andre Kaparthi kind of describes it as it, it it's going to become the the CPU of the future with the context length being 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 the RAM and you know it's going to take more, more of a role where it's going to be responsible for sort of marshalling and um uh, orchestrating instructions um in order to solve problems and so it, i think it will be yeah it will be really really kind of interesting to see how how that plays out um over the course of the next few years so i think it will become even more more and more central
0: yeah i can only see it become bigger um and just, yeah more and more <laughs> yeah it's just a really interesting way of thinking about it because it's it's a completely different use of what people think AI would do. And that's for me as well one of the key things it's it's just actually we're going to hit a point where it's we need to think differently and look at the approaches, and that's where coming back to right the start, things like open source community can throw up really crazy ideas, which could be shift the way we actually approach things entirely. And I guess the next point is all around open AI dominating a new field of, of AI as a service. Feed yeah. onto having the, the stores and stuff like that, I guess it's all part of this big wider <laughs> open AI at the moment. There's a lot of being used a lot, but um, they're certainly leading the way. I know now obviously you've got Google, AWS, uh, Microsoft, are, Doing their own thing slash heavily invested in open ai as well so it's a very blurry line there um why why would you do you think next year in I mean, we're think, be think between
1: that? them and anthropic um the open ai i think have been really really smart we take the open bit out of it which you know we've got a bit of an issue with um but you just focus on on what they're doing as a commercial closed source organization. Um, they have been really smart in terms of their whole strategy for developing their their products. In that, the first thing they've done is engage the developer community. So I, I saw a an interview with Sam Altman from about a year or so ago. And the main thing that he really talks about was the fact that he's spent most of his time talking to, talking to developers about how they use um, ChatGPT and GPT-4 or, or whatever. Um, and so th- for some time now, they've been laying the groundwork for developers, um, you know, uh, ISVs like ourselves and software houses to use their... APIs um, for uh, development and to create you know, products and services, um, and I think that with the announcements around GPT Store, um, it's it seems to me very very clear that they are you know, presenting themselves now as sort of uh, AI as a service, so they have their they're embedding API, they obviously have their GPTs, a- APIs, and, and they're extending that out into this GPT store. So, just as AWS was infrastructure as a service, and people like Heroku and Engine Yard were platforms as a service, and Salesforce was so, uh, you know, software as a service, I think OpenAI are trying to create this uh, AI as a service. Um, that's uh, that's that's gonna yeah be,
0: yeah yeah I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Um, I do think we'll see it more and more as a service because of the nature, and I, I guess again it'll be depend on business size, what use cases are, and things like that. But there's going to be a degree of like any like the SaaS world, um, any kind of technology that starts to be more specific. This kind of two routes you either have people internally who manage it or you outsource and have it as a service. And for heavily complex things, it's, it's going to be... <laughs> that'll be a fun acronym to pronounce. Uh, hopefully someone comes up with a... yeah. One that could, it could either be rude. <laughs> um, yeah. That's really interesting. I think you, you just touched upon the next point as well, which uh, there's that one, I think, one more that I want to end on. Uh, but... Open source versus closed source. Now you talked about open AI and I'll probably argue that open AI potentially, you know, when it started and things in the name, I think you you got an issue with the name, Um, but a lot of the AI community at the moment, you'd say, is a fair to say, probably quite open source, trying to develop it, trying to progress AI in a lot of of parts of it. Um, But there is closed source and, and revenue and things like that because it's, it is becoming a commercial product now. It's not something that's just research and theory. It's it's, it's tangible and monetizable, which I think is, could potentially hinder progress to a degree as well, which could be be fair to say, but also drive so much money into it, then it's like actually <laughs> you've got a lot of great minds still working on it. What, what do you think of that side?
1: Yeah, and I think that this is probably the most polarizing issue um, that is being debated right now is 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 what is that um line between um the 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 two arguments and the two the the, the, the sort of argument behind it that's being used for it is one of safety that uh, and and open api uh, oh sorry um open ai um s- started this trend a few years ago when they did i think I think it was probably GPT 2, might be GPT 3. I think it was GPT 2. They they released their paper, their research paper, and, and um, but didn't release the code. They didn't release the model that they were describing in their paper. They said we're gonna keep it, we're gonna keep it um closed. We're not gonna release it because of safety concerns. You know, this thing is so powerful that we can't trust it to anybody else because you know bad things might happen in the world. And so, you know, for safety, we have to keep this to ourselves. And I think that that is an argument that the likes of open AI have been using, maybe some people might say abusing for a little while. Um, and, but nevertheless, there is this sort of central argument that, with the rate of progress that we are seeing with the development of uh, AI and sort of people striving towards AGI, that it needs to be controlled in a way that means that it's not going to get into the hands of bad actors and you know, that nasty things are going to happen. Um, you know, have people like Jeffrey Hinton. Uh, Giving talks only a few months ago, saying that he thought, in his opinion, that um, large language models and the development of them represented an existential threat to humanity, and that there needed to be um, a regulation uh, and there needed to be much more sort of tighter controls over the development of it, and that these things shouldn't be, you know, just. allowed to go out into the wild to be to be used by anybody but then again you have people that have the opposite point of view which is that by only making it open uh, and making it available to to everybody are you then able to really know what you're dealing with but have enough people have a sufficient knowledge of what's going on who can develop more tools to Verify what's happening uh, and, and recognize the risks, and develop the tools and techniques to mitigate against you know any any sort of nasty nasty things happening. Um, and 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 to a certain degree, I think I probably lean on on that side of it more than the closed source size because I think keep mm-hmm. keeping things closed is only ever a temporary solution. At some point, at some point in the future, as soon as some somebody is gonna have somebody bad is going to have access to one of these things. Um and it's a bit late then to be saying, oh well, now the whole world needs to prepare for the fact that this we've got we've got this problem. Um so I, I think that uh the the, the, the safety argument for me that doesn't really hold. If, if you're a an, an organization and you have commercial interests and then you've invested a few million dollars into training your large language model and you've created new capability and you want to you know, offer that as a paid for service, but for commercial reasons, then fine. That's absolutely fine. That's what, that's what we would do, right? You know, we have our, we have our yeah. IP. There are certain parts of our IP that we want to protect because it's a differentiator, and you know, that kind of makes sense. But I, I, I do think that the, the safety argument doesn't really hold well for, for me. um oh, and when I, you're and making, I think-
0: Yeah, <laughs> billions of dollars, and then using safety is the reason. I think it's that transparency. Yeah. Like let's let's be honest and, and open about it because, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, talk about AGI. That's that's all the topics to go into. I feel like, yeah, there's a lot of security threats, issues. Um, it'll come on to the next point around regulation and things like that and ethics and in AI. Um being really important that we start to to look at that, you know, a few years ago, let <laughs> alone today. Um that's critical. Again, the minute you close things off, people are going to want to get a hold of them regardless. So it's actually the more you give it everyone access to it, then the less of a threat it probably becomes. Yeah. Um exactly. I also wonder today, I've also got I've got the view bit of AI. There's a lot of fiction and fantasy around AI, what I can do and what's going how it's going to take over. It's not Terminator. <laughs> um it's not Skynet, not yet. Um you know it might get to a point where it can do certain things. And if you get to super AI and things like that to the next level, then I guess you could in you know in theory depends on what's been told to do. And it might it comes back to me the AlphaGo example. It did a move that no one expected um to get to the outcome that we gave it. And for me, that's the kind of biggest risk, isn't even necessarily people getting <laughs> hold of it. It's um for me, it's well, we actually miss we program it to do something, and then it takes a totally different route to do that. Still achieves exactly what you've said. Um but not the way we expect it. And I think that's probably, for me, one of the biggest risks. But again, open versus closed source. Um, come back to kind of trends next year. I think there'll be a, a balance between research being released again, but I think there'll be more privatisation because I think it's now being monetized a lot more. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think once it's open. In terms of regulation, you said you don't think it'll happen before the next hopefully presidential election to have to remind people when that is for uk next, next, users next,
1: uh, but it's about 12 months from now i think isn't
0: it 12, 12 months from now yeah and then probably not for the next election in the uk as well um yeah is that just because the complexity of llms and i mean it's funny we've been talking about the development and the different approaches the fact we don't have like clear approaches and how they're going to work necessarily instructions and in different branches of it working how can you regulate all of that
1: yeah i think, there's I, a think lot of that, um, I think i think it'll be a very controversial piece of legislation to go through and formulating it. it's going to be you know quite walking a bit of a bit of a tightrope um but it it's interesting watching various industry leaders going up i think it was the senate they were talking to a few months back um, Sam Altman was among them. I think IBM was there as well. I can't remember some, one, one other. Um, and talking about, please regulators. Now, you know, from a cynical point of view, you could say, well, they would say that because they're kind of in the driving seat and they have the resources available to be able to a sort of define what that regulation is, um, and um, and B have the resources to be able to to deal with deal with the regulation um sam was suggesting that any regulation should be applied to or at least measured on the amount of compute which is basically a proxy for how powerful your language model is um or potentially your capabilities so if you have a language model or any sort of AI that is going to do something that is going to influence how people think or is going to potentially develop some new um, medical treatment or something like that that's going to have an impact on people's lives and that's that's something that should be regulated and I, I have, I guess, a, a certain amount of sympathy with with that side of things. You know, you can't just rock up as a, a um, and start producing sort of various medical treatments without serious amounts of regulation and to, to to pass through. But I, I do think that it's going to be a very complicated. Um, and controversial um, step for governments to start taking, and I think it will be more press innovation and and growth amongst you know, smaller companies and startups and things. So I, I would be I mean, this might age very badly, but I, I would be quite surprised that if this was something that happened um, in in the run up to the next next presidential election. But I don't know. I mean, I think maybe after that, then um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if if something uh, was was to happen in the course of the next five years.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it will happen. When? I think it'll take a while. I think this this question marks, you start talking about computing power, well, actually, what if back to one of the early points, that's a throttling point? if we find a solution around that. So actually, that doesn't stop you scaling yeah, there's things like that. So there's a lot of things to consider in there. Um, but yeah, we'll clip this and then next year when we come back and look at it again, we can see if you're <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got to have you've got to have one which is a prediction that's going to be right or wrong. We'll see. I, I, I'm with you. I think I, I don't think I don't think there'll be complex regulation or anything like that in place. I think they might make a statement regulation piece or something which is generic and can be put there just to say they've done something but apart from that I don't think there'll be proper regulation um right. so I'll just run through again so there was obviously embeddings are going to be massive on probably mainly neural network enhancement and capabilities um fine-tuning kind of base models of LLMs because of the open source community's capability to scale that it's only going to get bigger uh, and is a part of that, the search for greater context length will continue, which is, you know, going to be, be huge. Um, hybrid approaches to small neural networks and statistical-based systems is going to be be huge. Uh, and we mentioned kind of chatbot stores in the sense of um, chatGPT and things like that. That marketplace, I mean, it's going to be open AI's marketplace, which we'll probably expect is going to be one of the ones that grows massively. There might be, as you mentioned, Anthropic yeah. it's Google, AWS, you can't rule all them out. They've got big marketplaces already, so they, could, they are pivoting already to a degree to do stuff. Um <laughs> the LLMs become more centralized CPUs, that's a really interesting one. It shifted my, my mindset a little bit on it. And I think it's a very good point because you know you'll have the same hardware potentially, but very different software, which is a good way of thinking of. Yeah. How it is. Open AI will continue to dominate. Again, we'll come back to that one next year. And then open source and closed source is going to be a continuing battle, uh, as will the regulation of LLMs, isn't going to happen. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, there's quite a few points Great. in that. I know there's a couple of things around time series and things like that. I think we've probably covered all that during the yeah, the other things so. at, at various stages. So thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to seeing. How that all shakes out? (laughs) Yeah, Um, we'll probably be walking in a world of dinosaurs next year instead. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be there'll be something totally different that'll come out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, thanks a lot for running through all those. I think it's really good to dig into some of the details of how the work a bit further and kind of dropping a few layers down because it it gives you more perspective of actually how things can shift and why they might shift as well not just um, not just the case of a language models are going to get quicker I feel like there's a lot more to it and it was really useful for me as well just to to change my opinion on a few things based on this as well so thanks a lot for coming on oh. um, we'll definitely have you on again <laughs> and we'll talk about I think AGI we're going to have to talk about that because I'm, I'm keen to get a session in to talk about that but uh, yeah thanks for
1: for joining thanks Josh
0: cheers thanks for listening to this week's episode of Winning with AI we're here every single Thursday so please follow like and subscribe on your favourite podcast channels see you next week